You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the 116th Psalm, Psalm 116, and we read, beginning with the first verse, I love Yahweh because He hears my voice and my supplications, because He has inclined His ear to me, so I shall call upon Him all my days. The cords of death encompassed me, and the distresses of Sheol found me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, I beseech you, provide my soul escape. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous, and our God is compassionate. Yahweh keeps the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I give to Yahweh in return? for all his bountiful dealings with me. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his holy ones. Oh, Yahweh, surely I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of Yahweh, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise Yah. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, now as we turn our attention to the preaching of your word, we ask for your gracious assistance be at work both in my preaching and in our hearing. Strengthen us, Lord, to receive in our inner man what you have provided for us in your holy word. Your kindnesses to us, Lord, are overwhelming and never-ending. Every day when we awake, we meet with new mercies. What could we give in return for this but our public thanks? And so even as we reflect on this psalm tonight, Fill our hearts, Lord, with praise to you. Thank you for making us your children by the blood of your own Son. And bless this psalm to our hearts tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The personal and the public, the private and that which takes place in the community, these are the two aspects of our walk with God. There will always be that part of our walk with God that no one else knows about but us, even the person we're married to, for example. They know us. They know us better than anybody on the face of the earth in the realm of human relationships. 
but there's still that which goes on in your own mind and in your own heart with the Lord. So there will forever be, no matter how close we are to other people, there will forever be that personal, private aspect of our walk with God. And at the same time, God has ordained that we live our lives together, that we live our lives in the community of believers, and so always a part of a genuine believer's walk with God is the church. We walk together in our own families with those who know Jesus, and we walk together in the family of God with those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do these two aspects of our walk with God exist, they require each other. They are necessary to each other. We need to think about this more. How does our private relationship with the Lord connect with our public relationship to the Lord? Because God means for these two things to connect. How do they connect? Well, He has ordained that our private worship be the spring source for all of our public worship. When we gather together, what really happens is just the overflow of what is taking place in our lives every day. If today is the first time this week you have worshiped, then you're not living the Christian life. Now, we come together to worship together, but we've been worshiping all week before we arrived at this place to worship together. Our private worship is the spring source for all of our public worship, and God has ordained that our public worship be a means by which our private worship is maintained and informed and developed and enriched. Is your private worship necessary for your public worship? Yes. Is public worship necessary for your private worship? Yes. And in fact, sometimes God has ordained that what is personal and private becomes a means by which others are exhorted and edified in the public realm. For example, we heard this morning two baptism testimonies. I know that blessed you. What we were hearing about was a personal story, right? What the Lord had done in their lives. They told their story, how they came to hear the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a personal, powerful, life-changing, saving experience. But then God ordained that baptism be an ordinance given to the church. People aren't baptized in private in their bathtub or in their swimming pool by just anybody. God has ordained that baptism is a church ordinance for a reason. And so as they take their place among us through the waters of baptism, not only are they edified, a clear conscience, they're obeying the Scriptures, but we are all edified as we hear what the Lord has done in their lives. And of course, what He has done in their lives, we all have a share in because in one sense we all have the same story. I once was dead, but now I live. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was in bondage, and now I'm free. Free to serve Jesus as his slave. So baptism is an example of how the personal and the private becomes edifying in the public realm. The Lord's table is something the Lord has given to us. And in in the celebration of the Lord's table, which we will do next week, we all participate in something that we have personally experienced. 
Together we fellowship around the Lord's table. Together we celebrate our relationship with Jesus Christ. But each one of us entered into what that table represents one at a time. Each one of us came to Jesus as an individual. Now we gather together to partake of that table as a community. I bring up this relationship between private and public because of what we have in Psalm 116. What we have is a personal story that required public expression. A personal experience that by God's will was inscripturated, so now it serves in the public worship of God's people forever. It's an interesting psalm in that we don't know who wrote it. We don't know the time period to which it belongs. What we do know is that what was experienced by this person has something to say about all of our shared experience. That's why the Lord put it in His Word. Derek Kidner, commenting on this psalm, said, There's an infectious delight and touching gratitude about this psalm. The personal tribute of a man whose prayer has found an overwhelming answer. He has now come to the temple to tell the whole assembly what has happened and to offer God what he had vowed to him in his extremity. Let me just stop there for a moment in terms of Kidner's comments. He's saying this man in his private experience with God made promises that now require public expression to be fulfilled. Kidner goes on to say, such psalms as this, once written down, would help many, other, many another person to find words for his own public thanksgiving. Why would God take this man's private experience and make it public and then inscripturate it and preserve it so that we're reading it tonight? Because it helps us put into words what the Lord has done in our own case. This psalm is, has been divided in various ways by commentators. Tonight we're going to look at it under three headings. The first one, verses 1 through 4, a lifetime pledge born out of Yahweh's compassion. The writer tells us about God's kindness toward him, about God's compassion toward him, and in light of that compassion, promises something. He pledges something. A lifetime pledge born out of Yahweh's compassion. He begins by declaring his love for the Lord. I love Yahweh because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, so I shall call upon him. Here's that pledge. So I shall call upon him all my days. I love him now. I will love him for forever. The cords of death encompassed me and the distresses of Sheol found me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, I beseech you, provide my soul escape. He loves the Lord and he pledges that love for the rest of his life. And yet you can see this pledge is really just a renewal. It's a reaffirmation of what he has already known and experienced because his love at the moment is reflecting on a time when he called on the Lord in the past 
This is a man who, who already loved the Lord, who already knew the Lord, who in a moment of distress knew where to go. He called to the Lord, and the Lord, verse 4, heard him. And then I called upon the name of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, I beseech you, provide my soul escape. As we're going to read, the Lord heard him and answered that. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, they say that love is blind. But when we love God, our affection has its eyes open and can sustain itself with the most rigid logic. We have reason, superabundant reason for loving the Lord. And so because in this case, principle and passion go together, they make up an admirable state of mind. Do you know that tonight? Do you know what it is to have passion for the Lord, but it's also principled? You love the Lord, but you can give reasons why you love Him. Your eyes are open. It's not blind love. It's, it's eyes wide open love. And so as the writer expresses his pledge of loyalty to God, he explains it. He gives us reasons for it. Why does he feel such love for God? Well, he knew distress to the point of death. Verse 3, he says, the cords of death encompassed me. And the distresses of Sheol, or the, the abode of the dead, or the grave, the distresses of that found me. I found distress and sorrow. Distress to the point of death. He doesn't tell us what the situation was, but he tells us about the seriousness of it. So serious, it involved nearness to death. Found himself being constricted by death's snares, by the pangs of the grave, death closing in around him, as it were. And in that situation, with those distresses, what did he do? Verse 4, he called upon the name of Yahweh. Desperate cries for deliverance. Lifts his voice to God, cries out for mercy, calls on the name of the Lord, prayed for his soul's deliverance. I beseech you, Oh, Yahweh, I beseech you, provide my soul escape. And what did Yahweh do? He heard him. He received his pleas for mercy. Verse 2, because he has inclined his ear to me, so I shall call upon him all my days. Verse 1, because he hears my voice and my supplications. The Lord listened. The Lord inclined his ear toward him, bowed his ear to him, reached down to the sinner and delivered him from death's grasp. And it seems in this case, what he's describing was likely a physical deliverance. Again, we don't know the situation. We just know the seriousness of it. It seems like it was probably a physical deliverance. And the Lord has, has done that for many of us, delivered us in times we could have died but you and I have something much more profound, just like the psalmist did, to give Yahweh thanks for, and that is when he delivered our soul from hell, when he forgave all of our sins, when he made us his own children, when he first filled our hearts with pleas for mercy and then fulfilled the cries for mercy that he had filled our hearts with. God is the one who granted us repentance. 
He's the one who made us sorry for our sins. He's the one who opened our eyes to see where we were truly headed. He's the one who, who took away the heart of stone, as we heard this morning, and gave us a heart of flesh. He's the one who opened our eyes to see the beauty of his son and the saving sufficiency of his son, who took away our confidence in ourselves and gave us a confidence in Christ. He heard this sinner's pleas for mercy. And I love him for it. And I will forever love him for it. Zechariah 12.10 describes a day, a future day, of a great outpouring of salvation upon Israel. And in the 12th chapter, the 10th verse, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When that great day of awakening comes, it won't be a, a new day because Israel changed her ways on her own. It will be because, it will be because God has shown mercy to that people and poured out upon them a spirit of repentance, cries for mercy, open eyes to see who Jesus really is and what was done on that cross when he was pierced for our transgressions. Acts eleven eighteen says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is our story that, that when we were undisturbed, God disturbed us. When we were asleep, to our dreadful condition, not really alert and awake to where we were headed, he awakened us. When we would have never sought him, he sought us and filled our hearts with desires for his son and then saved us. What should our resolve be now to serve the one who saved us like that? The psalmist says, I love him. I love him because he heard my voice when I cried out at the point of death for deliverance. He delivered me, and I will call upon him, which is to say I'll serve him all my days, all my days. Is that your resolve tonight? Is that something that's renewed in your heart every day? Do you reflect on how kind the Lord has been to you? And is the result of that a desire in your heart to do him honor every day for the rest of your days, to love him. Yes, we're commanded to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but only grace can fulfill that command. Only grace could produce a heart that desires to really do that. So this is the first thing we see in the psalm. We see a pledge of loyalty born out of God's compassion toward him. The second thing we see verses 5 through 11, is now he takes what God has done in his case and he reflects on it theologically. We see a theological reflection that was formed through that deliverance. And everything he's going to express out of his own experience, you find in Scripture. This is the beautiful thing about God giving us his word. And this is one of the richest treasures you'll ever experience by learning the Scriptures and memorizing the Scriptures and reading them every day. Because now 
when you recognize the Lord working in your life, you will be able to tie it together with who he is as he has revealed himself to be on the pages of his inerrant book. Rather than trying to put it into your own words and trying to form your own thoughts about it, you'll be able to see from his inerrant book exactly who he is and what he is doing and how his work in your life is consistent with what he does in the lives of his people throughout the ages for all time to this very night. That's what the psalmist does. In verses 5 through 11, he, he reflects theologically now on what his experience, how it, how it links up with who God is and how God always behaves because God never changes. So what does he declare about God? Well, verses 5 and 6, we can say he declares that God is, is gracious. Gracious in a way that is glorious. He, he, he begins with the grace of God, but as you move on in those two verses, what does he do? He, he mentions several attributes of God. And this is the glory of God, the sum total of his attributes. The glory of God is his name. When Moses desired to see the glory of God, God declared his name to Moses. God's glory is who he is. And so the psalmist is saying, God is glorious, and he begins where every redeemed person always begins, and that is God is gracious. Gracious is Yahweh. And then that word is the idea of compassion. In fact, it's a Hebrew word that's only used in the Scriptures as an attribute of God. No man is ever referred to with this particular word. Exodus twenty two twenty six says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, that is, if you, if you violate my law, if you abuse such a person, if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Same word. Gracious. Psalm 111 verse 4 says, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. God cares for us. We say that. We, we say we know that. In some way, we do know that. But if we're being honest, sometimes we, we struggle. But maybe in the, in the toughest moments of our lives, we we tend to forget God really cares for me in this moment. I mean, in this test, in this pain, in this difficulty, God cares for me. Tender with his people. Enters into the hurts of his people. Not in the way we're affected by such things, but nonetheless, he reveals himself in his own word as a God who enters into the hurts of his people. Our needs matter to him. So much so that if someone's cloak is stolen and they cry out to him, he hears. So much so that he defends the widow and the orphan. He takes note of the one who's in dire straits and cries out for help. This is what the psalmist is celebrating. He takes the fact that he cried out to God for help and God heard him, heard him and he says, now this is who you are. You're gracious. 
but he's also righteous. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Gracious in a way that never compromises his righteousness. Compassionate in a way where he always remains upright. I heard someone just this last week, someone who doesn't know God. There's always that person who wants to speak for God, but it becomes clear as soon as they open their mouths, they don't know God. Saying that if Jesus were on the earth today, he would be leading the gay pride parades. Because Jesus always met with the sinners and always had compassion for people. Well, as the devil does, as you know, he always sows a sliver of truth into his lies. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Yes, Jesus met with outcasts. And yes, that offended the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day. But Jesus never knew a kind of compassion that would have confirmed someone in their sins. That's not compassion. That's hatred. I mean, even down to the level of the family, the Bible says one who doesn't discipline his or her child hates their child. Jesus confronted the sinner and then offered himself in the stead of sinners to provide deliverance for sinners. Christ's kind of compassion was Christ sacrificing his own holy, perfect life to be the sin substitute, to be the sacrifice for sinners. That's the kind of compassion Jesus knew, altogether holy, altogether upright, never compromising with sin, never refusing to confront those who needed to know they were sinners. The just one and the justifier of the ungodly. The reason why God can deal with his people as a father is because Jesus paid the price to make us his children. And so the the psalmist celebrates God's grace, but at the same time, in the same breath, celebrates God's righteousness. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Do you know this, God? I mean, this is a great way to test your concepts of compassion. Your concept of compassion, does it uphold God's holy law? Does it defend his holy name? Does it affirm what he hates? Are you willing to sacrifice, to spin and be spent, to see people delivered from their sins, not confirmed in their sins? Our God is righteous. Our God is merciful. And our God is compassionate, verse 5 says. Merciful is the idea. He pities people. He knows a kind of pity for his children that defies our performance. This is what mercy is. It's undeserved. And so God looks at us even in the moments when we're straying, in the moments when we're struggling, in the moments when we're falling and failing, and in the moments even when we're most ashamed of ourselves. And he has mercy. He has pity upon us. Again, he doesn't excuse our sins. He doesn't leave us where we, where we are, but he... He doesn't abandon us in our sin. He's forgiven us and taken us to himself. He won't let us go. And so he lifts us up in a way that puts our feet on the right path and puts our sin away and allows us to pursue righteousness 
afresh and anew. Never, ever stops caring for us. In fact, the psalmist says, Yahweh keeps the simple. What is a simple man? Not, not the fool. Now, the simple one is the, the one who is immature, you could say, naive. In many ways, a, a feast for wicked predators, people who are not making the wisest decisions consistently, people who might be prone to stray, wander, you know, me and you. And what does Yahweh do? He keeps us. He keeps the simple. In fact, notice the psalmist uses himself. He says, I was brought low and he saved me. He saved me. I won't take time to do it tonight, but just read Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish in in Jonah 2. And he's voicing, he's just echoing many of these same themes. Because here's a prophet of God who's just acted like a child and in that way acted like a simple man. And yet he's crying out to God for mercy. And the Lord has pity upon him and sets his feet back on the pathway of righteousness and allows that prophet to preach the message he should have gone and preached in the very beginning. Knowing as he does it that Jonah is not yet where he needs to be. Because you get to the end of that book and you see the prophet is still struggling. So this is his first theological reflection. He, he, he sees what the Lord has done in his life. God is glorious. He is gracious. He is righteous. He is merciful. He is faithful. Faithful even when I'm simple. To preserve me, to hold on to me. Second theological reflection, the result of that is I'm safe. I'm safe. Verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. Verse 3 says he was filled with all sorts of anxieties. Now what does he do? He preaches the truth of God's deliverance to his own soul. He speaks to his own soul. Soul, you need to return to your rest. But where is your rest found, O soul? Your rest is found in God. Your rest is found in his grace, in his mercy, in his tender pity, in his faithfulness. This is the believer's unique panic room. This is where we run when we would otherwise be afraid. We run to the knowledge of God's love for us. That's where you put your head down at night. That's the pillow your head rests on when you're afraid. God loves me. Even in my worst moments, when I act like a simpleton, he has preserved me. He's not going to let me go now. So soul, return to your rest. Hasn't God dealt bountifully with you? Hasn't he proven himself gracious towards you? Don't you know his love is forever? But there's a third reflection. God is glorious. I am safe as a result. Third, he hasn't delivered me to live for myself. He's delivered me to live for him. Deliverance is for devotion. Verse 8, for you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. You have delivered me from death 
The result, verse 9, is now I'm going to walk before you. I'm going to live my life before your face. Right here, right now, in the land of the living, I'm going to walk with you. God delivered his soul from death, his eyes from tears, his feet from stumbling. But why? So that he will now walk with God in the land of men. This is why God saved you, dear one. Not for you to live for yourself, not for me to live for the passing pleasures of this world, but for us to live for him. Are we fulfilling that? I mean, this should be in our hearts to do. Lord, how kind you have been to me, what you've delivered me from. Deliverance is for devotion. Deliverance is for service. And through those reflections, there's a particularly sweet one in verses 10 and 11. Here's another reflection. My faith is real. Having gone through what he has, the psalmist recognizes something about himself. Verse 10, I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. In whatever those circumstances were, we don't know what they were. But here's something he discovered about himself. In that moment, his faith was proven genuine because his confidence wasn't in men. His confidence was in Yahweh. He wasn't looking around for some sort of human deliverance. He looked to God and cried out with pleas for mercy, looking to God for his deliverance. It's interesting how the Lord, how we, we talked about it a bit this morning, how what we view as a dread, as a phantom, as a ghost, as something that frightens us actually turns out to be the very hand of Christ and one of the sweetest things God does for us. And I think about this with respect to great tests. You know, one of the things you and I struggle with from time to time is, is that very question, is my faith real? I mean, I read what the scriptures say about the supernatural nature of salvation. Is that really what I have? Is it just American Christianity? Is it just a some sort of tradition we've learned in our culture? Or, or do I have a form of godliness without the power? Am I a Christian in name only? Will I be, be among those who one day hear, depart from me, I never knew you. You said you knew me, but I never knew you. We wonder about those things. But what does God do? He sends circumstances our way that bring out into the open for our own understanding what he has done in our souls. And that's what the psalmist is describing. There I was at the point of breaking. And I said, all men are liars. I look to you, God. I trusted in you. And in that, there is encouragement and comfort of the reality of faith. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul gives voice to the sincerity of his preaching. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. 
confidence expressed in the sincerity of his faith and of his preaching. But we sometimes forget the context for that verse. Before you get to verse 13, you have to go back to verse 8, where he writes this, For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's a man who's being battered and beaten and crushed and chased after in every imaginable way. And yet what does he do? He keeps on preaching the gospel. And in that way, the sincerity, the reality, the genuineness of his faith is proven. I've reflected on it often since the night my father passed, died at 54 years of age, told you this before, playing basketball at our church in Elgin. I was there, my whole family was there when it happened. I was the one along with three others who tried to resuscitate him and all the rest. My best friend was grief-stricken the night when I drove his car home to their house and he's not there. You come home from vacation with them. My whole family gone on vacation. One moment you're talking to him, you're playing basketball with him, you're driving his car home that night, and he's in heaven. But I can't explain to you what a joy was in my heart knowing that my faith was genuine. Because in a moment when I could have felt forsaken, I knew God's love for me and my family. And I knew that he was worthy to be worshiped, whatever he chooses to do. And I knew from scripture that that's not natural. That's supernatural. And that's not something I produced. That's something regeneration produces. Sometimes the greatest gift God will ever give you is something that crushes you to the point that you discover my faith is real. God, you have done this in my life. So you have a pledge of a lifetime loyalty to God because he's been compassionate to you. And you reflect on what he's done in this case, in the case of the psalmist, through the lens of Scripture. And there are these theological realities that come into your mind because of what you've been through about God's glory and about his faithfulness, and about the reality and the genuineness of your faith. The third thing you see in the psalm is what you do in response to all of this. What do you do in response to all of this? And what you do is you give him fervent praise in the public realm. Verse 12, what shall I give to Yahweh in return for all his bountiful dealings with me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his holy ones. 
O Yahweh, surely I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of Yahweh, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise Yah. What can I give to God for all that he's given me? What return can I offer for such gracious, loving, merciful benefit? And when you take verses 13 through 19 together and you, you, you put it really in a statement, the answer to the question of verse 12 is this, I will offer public praise. What can I do? I will offer public praise. The fitting offering for my personal blessings is public praise. You see this fitting together of the personal and the public, the private and the corporate. The spring source for what happens here is what happens in your own life. And what happens here helps you to live in your own life. One feeds the other, the other feeds the one. God has ordained they go together. Public praise. I will publicly embrace the life of grace that God has given me. That's what he means in verses 13 and 14. I will lift up the cup of salvation, call upon the name of Yahweh, pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. Spurgeon said he means that he will utter blessings and thanksgivings and prayers and then drink of the cup which the Lord had filled with his saving grace. What a cup is this? Upon the table of infinite love stands the cup full of blessing. It is ours by faith to take in our, in our hand, make it our own, and partake of it. And then with joyful hearts to laud and magnify the gracious one who has filled it for our sakes. Oh Lord, what a cup the cup of salvation is. So I will publicly go on embracing it. I will live the life of grace, the life of salvation that you've given me. Another commentator said this, in support of a more metaphorical understanding, the cup of salvation seems to be the antithesis of the cup of God's wrath, which is clearly metaphorical and often found in the prophetic literature. The psalmist's determination to fulfill his vows indicates that he must have made a vow to God contingent on God saving him from his life-threatening situation. There he is in that trouble that he was in. Oh Lord, if you should deliver me. This is what I will do. And now he is ready to fulfill those vows in the company of God's people. I will embrace the life of grace that you've given to me. I will supremely value the one who has valued my soul. I will supremely value the one who has valued my soul. Has he valued you? Does he value you? Verse 15, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints or his holy ones. Your life matters to the God who's redeemed it. You're getting up in the morning, you're walking through the day, you're lying down at night, is never outside his thoughts. If we should number God's thoughts toward us, they would outnumber the, sand, the grains of sand on the seashore. 
Your tears are stored up in his bottle. How many different ways has he expressed the thought that if he cares for the birds of the air and the grass of the field, don't you know how much more he cares for you? He values you. Not because in the fall there is a creature valuable in and of himself. No, he has loved you because he has loved you. He has valued you because he has chosen to. And one who has valued you like that in grace and mercy, how should you value him? So this fulfilling of vows and this public praise, what is it? It's a recognition of, of the way God has loved me and cared for me and valued me. Precious in your sight is the death of your people. I will supremely value the one who has valued my soul. In fact, I am his slave. I am his slave. Oh, Yahweh, surely I am your slave. I am your slave. And then he says, the son of your maidservant. You want to talk about benefits. The psalmist at least had a believing mother. I am the slave of Yahweh, born of one who was a slave of Yahweh. What a benefit that is to be born into a Christian family. To be, to be raised by believing parents. Is there a young person hearing me tonight? What a benefit God has given you that you, you have believing parents, but you, you, are you his slave? Is this a psalm that reflects you? Are you able to say you see the genuineness of your faith? And if not, would you trust in Christ tonight? Would you give your life to Jesus tonight? What a sad thing it is to, to watch a son or daughter of people who genuinely love Christ and, and, and the son or daughter live lives that bring shame to their parents and the God of their parents. He has been loosed to be enslaved. In verse 16, you have loosed my bonds. You set me free to serve you. You set me free to be your slave. I was in bondage to sin and Satan and death and on my way to hell, and you set me free and enslaved me to yourself so that I will give you the only thing I have to give you. You need nothing, including what I have to give you, but I'll give you what I have. Verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of Yahweh in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise God. I will give you obedient sacrifice. I will give you offerings full of faith. I will give you thanksgiving in the presence of all of God's people. I will let the world know and I will let your people know how kind you have been to me so that our private worship is expressed in public worship so that God's benefits to us that we know about in our minds and hearts. We are compelled to make known in the company of God's people and to a, to a, a needy world that needs the one who has rescued us. This is the rightful return for all of God's benefits to us. 
Dear ones, isn't this what we desire to do? Isn't this how we desire to live? Amen? And so on this week, when we have thought about giving our God thanks, think about that. What do you have to give for all that He's given to you? Pledge yourself to live that life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such a psalm because it helps us give voice to what you have done in our own case. Every believer in this room, we have our own story. It's, it's a common story. We, the, the, the gracious saving elements of it are all the same, but, but yet it's personal. You have been uniquely kind to each one of us as a unique individual. And it should be our, our, our greatest desire and joy not to preach ourselves, to preach Christ, but to make known how Christ, how you in and through Christ have been kind to us. What shall I give in return for all of your benefits to me? I will give you praise. Thank you, Lord, for, for the perfect wisdom that has put together our private walk and our public praise. And may we be a people who live this out to the glory of our great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.